On this new series of the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast, you're invited to listen in on the guest visits to my Hustle and Grit class taking place virtually at the Ivy Business School. Hustle and Grit is a course that we created to teach you everything that you didn't learn in business school, in business school. In it, we invite world-class innovators and entrepreneurs to talk about topics like motivation, how to learn, what to prioritize, and even how to be happier. In these episodes, you'll hear live audio from my classes because honestly, there's just something different about the energy, excitement, and honesty taking place in a live classroom environment. So get comfortable, grab a seat, and don't worry, unlike my real class, I won't cold call you. Enjoy. Nicole has also been a dragon on CBC's Next Gen Den. She was also named Woman Entrepreneur of the Year by Startup Canada in 2017. Nicole sits on the board of the Canadian Crown Corporation, Canadian Commercial Corporation, and the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Nicole is a true Canadian champion for entrepreneurship. Hustle and Grit Clash of 2020, please welcome Nicole Verkind. Nice work. Nice work, Nicole. Welcome. What'd you think? I love the fake applause at the end. That was awesome. Yeah, they did uh, an awesome job. Nice team. They set a high bar. So you're the first You're the first one that the team had to actually do an intro for. Uh, and so, I don't know, that's a pretty high bar for other groups living up to those expectations. Yeah, no kidding. You know, it's a really high bar though. Like the color of your jacket and the background combo. I'm a lot. I know it. It's I'm a lot. Just, I'm it's a lot. Just so it's so it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my wife Justine. I went to go downstairs to the studio today to teach. She, you're gonna wear. You're wearing that today, eh? Yeah. This is what I'm going with. It's innovation day. It's about being different. I'm going for it. <laughs> oh, well, I am sitting for- at the stupid desk since seven o'clock this morning. So, like, I'm hoping you guys can wake me up a little bit because I'm oh. too far away from the coffee machine. <laughs> Oh, they will. They will, for sure. They're going to bring it. Uh, tons of questions rolling in. But I wanted to start with, uh, so I, 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 a handful, maybe two or three people have heard the story on opening day, Nicole, but um, I loved it. Uh, your opening day speech to the HBA1s coming in. And the reason I thought it was so cool is because you were just open and honest about, frankly, being lost and not really knowing exactly what to do out of HBA. And a lot of the people take here in the room, digital, take this course because this is a course that allows them to work on themselves and try to figure out what they want to do, what they're all about and what's next. So I thought you sharing your story on how you chose a little bit of a non-traditional path would be a nice way to start if you don't mind. Sure. I mean, good on Ivy and kudos to Ivy. And I'm, I'm sure you're influencing this, Eric, on having these different types of courses because I remember we were the first year to go through the entrepreneurship certificate. And I specifically remember it being a little more stuffy than it is now in terms of the classes were very structured around kind of these three tiers, accounting, management, consulting, and investment banking. And um, those are three really great careers. But the thing that those three careers tend to have in common is that you get on a treadmill, right? Um, So in, in the sense that, you know, if you haven't done your summer internship at an accounting firm, and then you're going to recruit for, for that out of school, it's, it can be very difficult. And so those were sort of the three paths that I remember thinking were my options at Ivy. And the whole time I just felt really uncomfortable with them. I did put on a horrible suit and interviewed twice at Ivy, both of which just went really badly. 
And so I, I had no idea what to do with my life. I ended up, uh, I think the Ivy Leader program is still happening, but I went to um, Moldova and, and Russia for the summer in between to do this entrepreneurship program, which was set up right after the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall to teach communists what capitalism was. So really out there, definitely not a direct path to a career uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I was graduating Ivy. Everyone kind of had a, a job or an idea what they wanted to do lined up. And, um, you know, somebody asked me what I did. And when I, when I look back, um, because I was in between and didn't know what to do, I ended up working at the racetrack at Woodbine being the exercise walker. And my title was hot walker. So that was the first job I had. And that was my official title. And my job was to walk quickly with the racehorses on the way to the track from the warm up area. And so like I wore a big number over my head and I delivered the racehorse to the jockey and I had my little Ivy business cards and I was a hot walker. So all to say you can be a hot walker and then move on from there. But I, I did that. I did a bunch of kind of weird things. I ended up taking a job commission only working in sales for a company out of Belgium that I got linked up uh, with through an Ivy MBA. So he told me about this company. He said, you know, there isn't a big base salary, but it'll allow you to travel, which I loved doing at the time. And so I, I took this job. The job didn't pay anything, but um, they gave me a, a $30 per diem and a percentage of sales and uh, kind of hoofed around Europe in the Caribbean selling these um, advertorials that were inserted into the center of the economist and new york daily time new york daily news and they were like advertisements on countries and so i did that for about a year and it was a really fascinating experience and i actually did quite well at it but it it really taught me how to sell which i almost feel like or felt at the time that some of the other ivy grads that i was going through with it was almost like if you were out making no base salary and you were, you know, calling a hundred people a day, it was almost, it was almost like us. I was almost slumming it. Right. Which I was in a sense. But when I look back and then, you know, I guess the intro video tells the story of what I did from there. I uh, worked in a family business, did a startup as a subcontractor, offshore manufacturing and company. And then uh, eight years ago, started Omex. But, uh, you know, when I kind of go through that whole trajectory, the number one most important thing, when I look back, for me, the most important skill was, was knowing how to sell and knowing what works and doesn't work. And so, I mean, obviously things make sense backwards, but um, I left Ivy kind of willing to do anything and then took on that sales job and it seemed like it didn't make sense, but um, when I look back now, I, I, I was thrown off the deep end and was forced to learn how to sell. And so I, I'm really grateful for that, for that opportunity. And I just think, you know, I, I end up now talking a lot about diversity and some of these other things that or innovation in big companies. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit today, but a lot of big companies now, you know, want to understand how to innovate. And when you look at the data points that contribute to innovation, you know, one of the most important elements is this notion of a diversity of opinions, not necessarily diversity in terms of what you're born with, but also experiences. And so I think that's an, I think it's important to remind everyone on the call today or in, in class today that I think that taking on these kind of strange, unusual experiences that might not have a direct path into a career can really help 
contribute to an organization's way of thinking outside the box, way of you know gr growing into new markets they wouldn't have thought that they would have grown into, et cetera. So it ends up being a direct correlation between an organization's ability to grow and expand into new markets and new sectors, et cetera, and having a team of people that have very, very different backgrounds it could be because of the, the qualities that they were born with, you know, race, gender, et cetera. But it could also just be the different experiences that you, you took on and um, different things that you learned and did. So um, including being, being taught by a teacher with a purple jacket in front of a purple wall is not entirely, you know, it's not entirely what everyone else would be doing in that scenario with a wall that purple. But it's all about this idea of just thinking a little bit differently about things. And so, um, I can get into my background a little bit more, you know, as we chat, but I think that's what came out in my HBA one uh, talk was just that, like, if you just look at what I went through, I mean, the whole time I, I, I was telling myself that my life was a shit show. And when I look back now, I think, well, actually some of those things were really key building blocks to, for me to learn some of these, you know, out there skills and, and gain these experiences that were different. And then, I ended up building an entire company and, and selling it um, kind of based around these idea of doing these country reports. So we automated a lot of the, the data intake that was required to, to estimate impacts to GDP. And so that kind of translates back to that very first sales job I had. So um, there's lots of ways to go about this. And I just think that it's really critical for anyone kind of in school now to be, to be open to, to learning all sorts of new things. So people, uh, this is, I'm scanning some questions and I want to relate it to what you just said. Uh, they build up the first thing out of Ivy as like the thing, right? It's like the, the first thing on your resume. It's your first justification to your parents that this was the right decision, that it was worth spending this much money on, that it was worth their investment, uh, whatever. Like, should they be building up the first like, does the does the first thing matter as much to you who would technically be hiring these people out of school? If if someone if someone was the hot horse, hot walker, and then you know traveled for six months, uh, are you going to hire that to kind of profile at OMX? I mean, you can spin your background into anything. You could say that you know while I traveled, I learned all about this country, and that's why I should be an account manager selling to that country. It doesn't. It doesn't. Like it's really hard to judge someone when you're hiring them based on what they've done in the summer in between a few years of school. So I would say no, but also of course it does too. And the extent that if the folks today on in the, are we calling this in class? You know, if you want doesn't to get feel into like startup, it though, does it doesn't feel like <laughs> no, it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. If you want to get into a startup, you know, I, I think that interview process, they're going to be looking for something very different than obviously a larger, more established company. And, and so I would just say that joining a startup, the number one thing that people hiring are looking for is, is the ability to be a self-starter more than anything. And so like I, I've hired some students who um, did the, uh, I can't remember what that's called, where you, it's like the franchise painting company where you're running around painting houses and you get a percentage and, you know, but they spent the whole interview talking to me about how they had to knock on doors and pitch why your house needed to be repainted. And I thought that was fantastic. So, I mean, you can spin anything, like to answer your question, yes or no. And, and the other thing that I think is important is a lot of people are in a big rush 
you know, which is good because you, you don't want to be slow about things, but they're in a big rush to make things happen quickly. And, you know, a lot of the data is coming out that the best entrepreneurs are in their mid forties and they've done a bunch of things and they've got some battle scars and they've made a bunch of mistakes. And so you don't, you know, you don't have to be hitting it right out of school the year after. Um, it's okay to be doing different things. So that was one of the questions, actually. Did, did you always know that eventually you'd be doing something entrepreneurial? I know it was in your family a bit because you didn't right out of school say, I'm going to go work for myself. You, you were pursuing wanting to work somewhere else. So did you eventually know that you wanted to or? Uh, I had no, like, let me be, I don't know how to be more clear. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Like absolutely zero, no idea. It was like this, I'm just going to push this decision just kick that can down the road and, um, and put it off. And I had absolutely no idea. And, and it terrified me. And I think it's important for people to hear that, that, that it absolutely terrified me that I, you know, people knew what they wanted to do. And I had no idea. And the idea of joining my family business was, was not at all what I wanted to do. I ended up doing a startup in the, the sector. And then our family business actually got into some pretty, some pretty big trouble. And I joined the business just to, to help with a restructuring effort. So I didn't join it because I was going to take over and this thing was going to be huge. You know, we were going from 900 to, to 200 employees under, you know, some stress of contract changes. And that's a whole nother class that, that could be taught on what happened there. But it was kind of just me reacting to, okay, I think that I'm going to go put my effort here now. And, and then, I don't know, things go on. I, I, I can say that I never was able to sit still very long. And um, even within OMX, every three years, we were kind of dramatically reinventing ourselves that I've seen in a lot of, of people that are entrepreneurial is just every couple of years, every two or three years, they say you have a seven year itch, just always wanting to, to continue to iterate and, and change things. So there's a lot of questions that are coming in about sort of the personal figuring yourself outside of things. So I, I want to, I'm going to come back to those. I want to lump those into a, a piece, but first I wanted to get your perspective broadly on innovation because you see innovation from a bunch of different perspectives. You see it from uh, as an entrepreneur uh, involved in some policy on the government side, sitting on boards uh, as an employer how are we doing? How's the country doing in terms of innovation? So the country's doing horribly. Um, I, I don't know how else to, to say that, but so the, there's kind of two conversations. I have changed my definition of innovation dramatically. Now I think my definition is that it's an attitude. So to answer your question, your first question on what is innovation, obviously it's a lot of things and there's lots of ways to define it and you can Google it and there's definitions, but I've come down to this notion that is it is an attitude. It is a way of thinking about things. And it's a little bit of what I described earlier about, um, you know, breaking the box, making a bigger box, you know, look, looking outside the box at different ways to do things. Um, it's a lot of tiny activities. It's small pivots. It's a lot of grinding away, making small changes and experimenting. So that that's kind of how I would define innovation. Your second question about how Canada is doing, um, so I co-chaired this task force last year called the uh, um, Canada's ta Task Force on, oh gosh, economic, um, like kind of where we were at in Canada. It was led by the Business Council of Canada, 100 biggest companies. They put me on as the token small business. And um, we looked at all the macroeconomic data of what is happening with businesses in Canada and the economy. And, um, you know, our economy has done well over the last little while, but 
when you really dig in and look at the root drivers of an economy, a lot of the theorem around why we've done well is because we've had a bull market in the U.S. You know, Donald Trump uh, has done a lot of bad things, but he, he did a lot of good things for the stock market and for uh, GDP and general growth. Um, and, and just some of those drivers were, were not, some of those drivers that drove our GDP it was scary to look at them because they were not the things, you know, IP, um, IP exports had never been lower. And in relation to other countries, we were the worst by far. The regulatory burden that we face um, in trying to get new ideas implemented and startups going and, and businesses in Canada was higher than most of our peers. So there was five or six metrics that kind of are there to tell the story of of what we're gonna see 10 years from now. And, and they, were, they were quite poor and getting worse with regulatory burden being, being very, very poor and uh, definitely the IP export, which we see as something that kind of could tell a story, a longer term story, right? So how do we build the next Nortel and the next RIM? And how do we, how do we really generate new IP and not just be selling oil and commodities that, that don't, um, they have a big impact on the economy, so I don't think we should ignore them, but they don't have they don't drive these really high margins and really high paying jobs. So through that study, we, we kind of discovered that it is a problem in Canada. We've got a bit of a branch plant mentality. We have, you know, branch plants of large brands here. And so they don't typically have big innovation budgets here in Canada. Their innovations happening in the U.S. or Germany or wherever their headquarters are. But on the other side of things, I've been a part of the startup community for a decade, and I've seen a huge change, and I'm sure you've noticed it too, Eric, uh, with you and your wife. Like the, the vibe in the startup community in the last six, seven, even five years has changed dramatically. There's a lot more capital for early stage. There's a lot more interest in the space. Um, like There was no early stage seed, seed funds eight years ago. So I'm enthused by that. I'm enthused by, you know, Shopify and some of these other champions that we've seen and done really well. So there's, there's good and bad sides to the whole conversation, but we cannot rest on our laurels and just think like we've always had a good in Canada. And I think that's part of our problem is that we don't, we, we aren't experiencing this, this urgency of we need to innovate now and we, we need to do it in big ways to kind of ensure that we do well as a country 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now. Yeah. We had this uh, big versus small innovation sort of debate in the first half of class. So talking about old, probably a tired example, but uh, there's a baseball team in, in Savannah called the Savannah Bananas. And this guy named Jesse Cole bought the baseball team. Baseball is boring. Uh, it's a long game to watch beer is expensive. And Jesse came in and said, this isn't a baseball game. Let's make it entertainment. Let's put 70 year old people break dancing on the field. Let's make beer $2. Let's make the first base coach line dance. All the baseball players are going to wear kilts and suddenly ticket sales skyrocketed. So we talked about like soft innovation versus, you know, more like industry changing innovation and maybe not the best example right now, but we talked about electric cars and Elon Musk. Like that's, you know, what he's doing in multiple different ways is changing industries. And the debate was, is there, is one better than the other? Like, and, and it came down to that this conversation was around impact and it was one has impact more than the other that uh, it seemed like the class was sort of gravitating towards 
um, as much as you may not like him as a person, that Musk type innovation is more helpful for the country. Uh, agree, disagree, comment on that soft versus like the monumental game changing innovation. Yeah. I, I love Elon Musk, and I want to agree that the second one has a much bigger impact. And in the long term, it probably does, you know, building another Nortel or a RAM, like I gave an ex as an example. But we cannot ignore the first innovation. I mean, that is where I think that we could almost do more because we've already got all these businesses here that just need to make these little changes to be more relevant internationally. And that's really, if we're talking about growing the country and GDP, that's the game is, is exporting. Like I went over to Germany on this economic uh, council and um, we were interviewed by the minister of, I don't know if anyone's heard this terminology, but you can do a whole class on this called the Mittelstadt. And there's an entire economy in Germany of these medium-sized family-owned businesses. And the Mittelstadt in Germany, they're like $100 million businesses, right? But they have a very interesting story. You know, they're privately held, usually by one, one founder, and they're incredibly innovative. And what they like to say in Germany is that the Mittelstadt is, is actually gaining more margin from China than some Chinese companies because they're powering automation in factories in China. And they're powering areas where Chinese factories are gaining more and more margin. And so the, the German IP-driven machinery from the Mittelstadt is is gaining a big piece of that. But I bring that up because it's not sexy. It's not reinventing an entire industry like electric cars, but you can be damn sure that the entire EU is funded by Germany, which is a lot of their growth is being driven by this very, very successful Mittelstadt, which is you know, boring industrial businesses led by founders that are willing to take risks because they're not big corporates that are publicly traded and, and taking less risk. And they're, they're, they are innovating, but they're not, they're doing more of the the seventy year old line dancing in the, in the in the in the example of just these small pivots to gain more market share as opposed to a reinvention. And I think that a lot of people don't do innovation because they feel like they have to be an engineer and they have to completely invent something. And, and innovation is not a variant of the word invention. Like they're very different words, right? Invention is to is to be a scientist. And innovation is a different thing. It, it's to pivot and change and, and, and change something and experiment. And that can happen in a world where you could be generating revenue quickly and where you could be having a huge impact. So an impact not meaning, like I just mean kind of if you go back to straight business, driving more margin and, and that example, you know, if, if you're just making one tooling device more automated for a factory that spits out 20 million t-shirts a year. I mean, again, not sexy, but, but you can make a lot of money. Yeah. So suggestion on like, I want to, we'll wrap up the company talk and then I want to get to uh, more on the personal innovation side. So what can we actually be doing? And we can attack it from two ways, either the company level. So like processes or steps that maybe you've used in your own companies to be more innovative and then I want to tackle it from an education perspective. So there was a question about, I'll get to the specific question from Matt about uh, what we can be doing, frankly, as educators who teach entrepreneurship to be teaching it, you know, better and more effectively, but start from a company perspective. Like what did you do at Tiburon or OMX to be innovative, to stay sharp? Well, I mean, we were so different because we were, we were startups. So we were, we were, all innovative from the beginning. I would say the smartest thing I did was just hire people that were also entrepreneurs. Um, 
And it's kind of a different example, but I, I think the solution, I'm saying it's a different example only because if you're venturing out and doing a startup, like you are innovating, you, you just are like you're, you, there's just no way out of that. I mean, um, but there's a book that I'm going to force or you can force everyone to read. I'm sure. I think you have the power to do that. Not me. I can do whatever um, I want. No, I can't. Yeah. There's a great I book I read about a, about a year ago uh, called Loon Shots. And okay. it starts about talking about the history of, of radar and trying to get radar introduced into the military. And, you know, I, you read the story of them trying to get radar into the military and we're like 20 years before the second world war and they, and they should have had it in, but every uh, loon, the question is loon shots or moon shots. It's loon shots. It, everything that happens to these people is what happens to innovation in large corporations. You can see the, the, the corporate bureaucracy of, of, of trying to get some funding and all the, all the things that go wrong in, in trying to get innovation in a big company. So you see this story and then it starts to talk about models that actually work. And I'll give you the punchline. So actually now you guys don't have to read the book. The punchline is that you need a dedicated team completely walled away from all of that corporate bureaucracy because that stuff will kill you. So dedicated team walled away. And the absolute most important thing is whoever leads the team needs a straight shot to the CEO, to the leader with money and authority. And so they tried to innovate in the US military. They couldn't make it happen. Finally, people are dying and we're in 1943. You know, you know, we all know what happened then during the Second World War. And finally, Franklin Roosevelt wrote a letter and authorized this guy, gave him straight money, straight authorization from the president of the country. And then he got his own people and he was able to finally make things happen. But you know, you, you can't bury them, they can't be within the organization, you can't scatter them. It needs to be a dedicated team, completely walled away with authority. That's, that's I think, the model for encouraging innovation in large companies. Of course, what we see more often is just acquisition. So large companies realize they're not being innovative, they're losing market share to a competitor, they don't have their tech solution or whatever, so they just, just acquire it. And I guess that's okay too. We see that a lot as well. Yeah. On the boring tactical side, what we did when I was in the thick of it was you literally, we literally said like when it was budget time, like if we were to break it down into a, a piece of the pie, what percentage goes to current maintaining our current payment system? What percentage of our budget, time, people, whatever goes towards working on stuff that we don't currently sell. And at some point we just made a call. You know, we're going to have our dev team is this big. We're going to have 10 people working on maintaining what we have today. And if we don't work on what's coming and what's next, then we're screwed. So we're literally going to say 50% of our people resources time are walled off and they're going to work on net new super tactical stuff on the it's personal just, side. Sorry, that can be hard because especially if you're publicly traded, there's so much pressure to be sure. every single quarter delivering more margin and it's expensive to be innovative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On the personal, well, let's go to the education side. So the question is, and uh, forgive me that I, I don't see who the original question was from about entrepreneurship education. I'm scrolling here. There's many questions. You can come off mute and ask it if you, um, yeah, Matt, go for it. Basically, the observation was that Canada has the highest post-secondary rate, but my impression is that you wouldn't see it as an entrepreneurial hub. So I'm wondering, do you think there's a connection there? And if so, how can we improve the education on a scaled level so that um, we can build more of a pipeline for entrepreneurs in Canada? 
Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think that we are missing the practical piece in this. So what I'm seeing out of schools like Ivy is amazing because they didn't, they weren't offering that content before. So I think that's a huge improvement in the last 10, 15 years. Um, but to me, I think it's the things like, it's the practical side of, of bringing students into startups, um, you know, maybe during the summer or just connecting those dots a little bit more, I think would be really, really key. Even just fostering startups, like I remember going through the entrepreneurial certificate at Ivy and um, there was a guy, I don't know if you remember him, Eric, or what year you were, but um, he was a professional baseball player, had always been a professional baseball player, and he always had this idea for these underwear that would be better for professional baseball players. And um, so we were taking entrepreneurial finance in school, and it was theoretical, as you can imagine. We were learning how you raise capital and equity and you know, kind of basic building blocks. But he actually had his startup in his mind the whole time, and the teacher at the time said, well, let's actually use his startup, and we're going to teach the class in a more practical way. Let's actually take that and figure out how to help him raise capital and walk through all that. Well, fast forward a few years, you know, he sold the company a little early in my opinion, but he did very, very well. And it's a brand you guys probably all know, Saks, uh, Saks Underwear. So I sat next to him in my entrepreneurial finance class and we used that as the example kind of throughout. And that's, to me, that's great education because it's practical and it's, it's real. And then you can actually apply it in the real world. He could have been raising money at the same time. I mean, I think he did a few years later, but I think that that is the solution. The other piece of the, the coin, you know, as we started studying the Canadian economy and what's needed is there's a, there's a direct correlation between attracting people from other countries. So having a very proactive immigration policy, uh, the government introduced the startup visa, they've introduced other measures to bring people from other countries who want to live in Canada, but are also very entrepreneurial. And they tend to go through the school Canadian schools um, before they come, come to Canada kind of full time. And there is a much higher percentage, the data is showing, of people that are coming to Canada starting, they're coming here and starting businesses. And so there's, there's that correlation that we need to be mindful of as well, which I think is really interesting because they come through the schools first. So now that is a broad stroke. I'm just going off the data that we found in the Economic Council. But uh, um, anyways, it's, it's obviously not an easy answer, but I think that the I think the answer lives in the word practical, right? Like, so get out of the textbooks. And that's what the case study is, which is great. But the more we can use the real examples um, and work on them in school, I think the better. So um, now to the personal side of innovation. Having gone through, I did the same thing as you. I think my beginning was like a bunch of stutter steps and screw ups and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Still don't. I think I will be teaching in some respects for the rest of my life, but who knows in what capacity, any advice that you might offer to help people navigate that early, those early phases, like self work they can do, you know, travel, personal development, like journaling, uh, strengths assessment, like what can they do to help make that process less painful? Well, I think if people are interested in a startup, Something I see a lot is people saying, I really want to do a startup, but I don't have an idea. So I see that a lot. And then I also see a lot of spending a year or two brainstorming and coming up with the concepts and kind of going through that process, which is, which is interesting, but you see a lot of those two things. And so I think with those two things, I would just say that the more and more people 
get an appreciation for the fact that the, the process to find out what you want to do is actually the process of being on the field and making mistakes and doing your screw ups. Like you have to do those things, like sitting in your basement, coming up with the idea for six months and, and working on the idea, you know, in your mind or, you know, a lot of, a lot of technical people, that's where they go wrong is they develop a product, you know, in their basement and they're not sitting next to a customer. So I think the answer, unfortunately, because it's messy, lives in, in doing these very, very cheap experiments as often as possible and knowing that all the mistakes are, 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 are critical for the process. If you're wanting to be an entrepreneur, that's, that's to me, I think it's important for people to hear is that like, you, you, but you never hear of those, those mistakes. That's why I try to highlight them, although I've forgotten most of them. But, you know, I, I, I'll call up a client and say, I have this, this product that I want to deliver and I won't have it built yet. This is what I would have done early on and said, uh, you know, would you give me um, $1,000 to uh, go and run this procurement for you? And then, you know, boom, I crash. They say no. Then they explain to me why it's no. And then I know, oh, don't build that technology. So, you know, it might've been embarrassing. It might've been a, a stupid phone call. I might've gotten a big fat no. It might've been embarrassing when I saw the guy at a conference a month later, but I found out quickly, you know, by asking, I did it before I invested in technology. Um, it was free and it's just this notion of, I mean, we're in Canada, so we can say it, although I hate hockey, but like, you just have to be on the ice. You can't, you, you can't, you can't go to Bali and find yourself with a journal and, and think that that's going to be how you come up with your idea, right? Like you've got to be on the ice, just doing things in an industry you have an interest in. Yeah. You got to be in it. And it like, it is inherently messy. So, you know, you want to, I wish there was shortcuts to figure it out and like, uh, we've arrived, here's the playbook, but it, I think it just is an inherently messy process for better or worse. So uh, a bunch of questions that I'm going to start to moderate here, but Tierney, yours is getting upvoted quite a bit. So I'll let you ask your question to Nicole. Sure. So um, in my question, Nicole, I kind of referenced a bunch, a bunch of statistics that prove that women entrepreneurs potentially have the odds stacked against them. There was something like they're um, less likely to reach a million dollars in revenue. I think Companies with male founders receive funding after their first round close to 35% of the times, but for female founders, that's around 2%. So my question for you is, why do you think that is? Perhaps it is an innovation issue, perhaps not. And what can we do to kind of shift those patterns? Really, really good question. Um, I feel bad giving the answer because the answer kind of sucks, uh, but I'm going to give it on, based on as much data as I remember. You are right that the data shows that it's mostly an innovation problem, that what gets lost in those stats is that a lot of women entrepreneurs are starting businesses for products that only women want that are inherently like VCs cannot invest in those companies, not all of them, but you know, if you're opening up a, a waxing shop downtown and if there's one shop, you know, it's not scalable unless it's a brand, obviously, but a lot of the data shows and, and a lot of women are doing, you know, starting companies while they're having kids as well. And so it's a little bit part-time. It can be, again, this is based on data. I'm, I'm not being, um, I'm not beating women up for doing that. I'm just saying that what gets lost in some of these numbers is um, that 
on a whole, there just tends to be less innovation happening. And so it's very hard to, they're not venture backable. Like there's a, there's a model for, for providing venture capital to a, a company and it's based on unique IP. It's based on something that's extremely scalable. And um, you just look at the stats there, there's more women than, than men in university, but there's a hell of a lot more men in engineering. And the most technically backed startups are founded by men who have an engineering background because they understand the technology. And so those are, are way bigger things to get over than just saying, well, we need more funding set aside for just women. Another big reason at the early stage, and I've seen it because I'm an early stage angel investor, I've invested in about uh, a dozen companies. And what happens at the early stage is you don't have a lot of data, right? You can't look at a lot of sales or, or churn or the, the key inputs on what you would decide on if to invest in a company. So what investors do is they invest entirely based on the entrepreneur. You know, they back the jockey, not the horse. So they back the entrepreneur, not the idea. And it, they don't realize they're doing it, but a lot of investors like to invest in people that remind them of themselves when they were younger, right? And I've even seen it with myself. I'll come across a woman that's excited and hyper and kind of like me, and I'll go, oh yeah, I think, I think this, this could work. And I don't do it on purpose. I'm, I'm not sexist towards men at all, but I can, there's something in there and the studies are starting to unravel that because you know 97% of, of big angel and VC investors are men, that is a real stat. Then 97% of, of startups that get backed um, at an early stage, and you have to do the early stage before you do the late stage. So you, know, you have to get through that, that, that um, step. They tend to be men maybe for that reason. But there's, you know, this is a this is not a problem that we can solve right away because again, it's it's rooted in in culture. And if you're a little girl and, and your parents are telling you to play with the Barbie and not some, you know, not giving you the same, the same, I, I don't know. I have a, a nieces and nephews that play um, Minecraft like obsessively, and it's great because now the girl is playing the same game. So that that's great. But you know, if I just think it's a very, very complicated answer. And I'm sorry that I don't have an easy answer. You are right on the data, but a bunch of those things all contribute to it. But even, even just growing your business and getting sales, like you can't raise money until you have sales. And half the time I was selling to men in positions of power, they would be CEOs and they'd be in their late fifties and I'd be 20 and I'd be a young woman. And I'm less likely to go out for dinner with them until one in the morning to close the sale. I mean, I, I did anyways, but it's more intimidating, you know? So, so there's all of these little factors that build up that all contribute to it, but we are having a moment. I think like, I've, I've never seen, I'm, I'm on an investment committee for a VC fund called Disruption Ventures and, we're raising lots of funding. We're only investing in women-led um, startups. And we're seeing a lot of that type of momentum happening now. The government stepped in and set aside funding just for women-led companies. So we're going to see more and more. And then we're going to see more women entrepreneurs be successful and then mentor the next generation. And it's, it's only going to get better. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but it's a, it's a fascinating answer. And to just go right back to the reason you guys are in this class, one of the contributing factors is that the data is showing that there's less innovation in women-led businesses than in male-led businesses. And I think it's a bunch of reasons, but, um, but that, is, that is what I've understood is, on the most part, one of the reasons. 
and you don't have to be technical to be innovative, right? We've talked about this. You can, you can have 70 year olds doing the splits on the first base. That can be an, an innovation. So I think the more women start to see that you don't have to be an engineer or your innovation could be reaching the customer in a different way or the business model, not just the technology. I think the more that we see that, the more we're going to see more uh, companies. You're talking about sales in the beginning, Nicole. And so I don't want to, I don't want to pump her tires too much, Tierney. She's going to blush, but uh, Tierney was one of the finalists for the Great Canadian Sales Challenge. It started with 2,200 students across Canada and she made it to the final 16. No big deal. No big deal. Awesome. If you're looking for a salesperson, uh, you may want to connect with her. I am. I am right now. I am looking for a salesperson. I need a salesperson who wants to sell um, wine racks. Oh. We'll be in touch. She'll, yeah. she'll be on it. She'll follow up with you. Be careful. Um, yeah, I'll put the website in the chat. You guys can check it out. I actually do need, we actually do need somebody. Uh, Cyrus, you had a question that, uh, there you go. Sellergenius.com. Cyrus had a question, uh, about superpowers. Go for it, Cyrus. Um, yeah. So my question was, so last week, um, our speaker, Alan Gertner talked about how his superpower was not having FOMO. And I think a quick definition of this is kind of like, what do you think differentiates you or makes you like unique around from those around you? So my question is like, what do you think your superpower is? Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Um, I have to think about this. I think it's changed a lot too. Um, my superpower now is like cutting to the crux of something, like very quickly trying to get to the, to the, to figure out, I know that's not like a sexy, uh, like a straightforward one, but like very quickly being able to see um, like what needs to happen. Like I was just listening to pitches here right before this, this class and, you know, very quickly being able to see what their issue was. That's a great, great superpower. That can be. That's the worst superpower ever. I need to think of a better one. No. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, I was the word after I said, it, I was like, that was awful. No, it's. <laughs> It's a great one. I think you share it with my, it can be annoying because my, my wife, Justine, who, you know, she just sees it faster than me all the time. And so there's so many times where I'll be like long as I do trying to explain things in a long winded way. And she's the one who's like, now nah, I got it. It's this I'm like, uh, just let me, I just want to, uh, but she's so quick. She's always so quick to get to the root of something. And she's, she's always there faster than I is because she's smarter than I am. Michael to build on that. You, so Mike, go ahead, ask your question. Hi, Nicole. So my question is, what is your opinion on striking a balance between pursuing a pre-existing talent and working to acquire a new one? Okay, this, this is a really good question. Um, I have gone back and forth on this because when I was starting my business, I needed to be better at accounting. So I obviously had to learn enough skills to be, to be good enough at accounting. Um, I am a firm believer now that I think that you shouldn't care about the things that you're not good at and that you should just double down on all the stuff that you are. And um, if you're an entrepreneur, hire the, hire the skills around you that you're not good at. So like I really tried to work on being more detail oriented, being more, you know, all the things that I'm not known for. And I had to do it in the early days when our team was small, but then I just prioritized hiring an incredible ops person, an incredible CFO. And then I got to do more of the sales, the growth, the, the other stuff. So um, I, uh, I would say to keep doubling down on what you are good at. Thank you. Would I be able to follow up on that, Eric, really quickly? Sure. 
I was gonna say, would you still would that still apply to somebody who's very young, like a like a twenty one year old? Hypothetically, right, Michael? Yeah, yeah hypothetically. Yeah. 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 No, that that's a good point because you know, if a twenty one year old came into the company and they were really good at selling, but then they didn't, I don't know, fill up fill in the CRM and so they were like totally lacking any detail or diligence, then like it would, it would, it could be a fault. Um, I guess it, I guess it depends. I, I think that for the most part, that one's hard. I kind of need more specifics about like what the talent is and what you're not sure about. But I, I think the general rule is, um, is to spend more time doubling down on what you're really good at and then own it. Right. So you're going in for an interview, you say like these, this is what I'm really, really strong at and it would do well in this environment. Right. So maybe you need more structure or less structure or you want to work commission only, or, or maybe you're, you are detail oriented and you, like, you know what I mean? I, it's kind of hard to say, but it, it sucks because big companies from what I've seen tend to like very well-rounded people. <laughs> Whereas I'm the opposite. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Will. Uh, Will Andruk, you had a good question about uh, COVID, actually. Oh yeah, for sure. First off, thanks, Nicole. This has been super, super awesome so far. Um, and my question is, uh, this time of COVID has really shone a spotlight on the fact that we need to be able to be nimble in both our businesses and in our personal lives. And that ability to pivot and innovate has really been um, magnified as a skill necessary to, to survive these days. And so I was wondering if there are any leaders you admire and draw inspiration from for the way that they innovate. Are there any leaders I draw inspiration from? Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. <laughs> I, um, it is true that COVID has, has shone a spotlight. Um, but I I'll just say, I'm not answering your question at all, but um, I'll, I will say about COVID that I think that the opportunity for all of you has, has become even bigger in the sense that we have accelerated the economy by a decade in one year in this notion of digitization and innovation and, and all of the skills that all of you, I'm sure, are very strong at. And so the number of companies that are being forced with without, you know, like I, I was selling enterprise cloud-based supply chain software for the last decade. And the number of my clients that were still on on-premise so that they couldn't access any of their data if they were not in the office at the exact location was unbelievable. Some of the largest companies, like it would shock you. Well, they're all being shook, shaken into this notion that they have to digitize and, and do all of these things to uh, be ready for you know global pandemics and, and many other potential crises. So I think that's a big opportunity for you guys. Um, leader I admire, I, I don't know, maybe I'll have to get back to Eric on that, but um, I there's so many, I just can't think of one right now. Is there anybody Elon doing it right in... Elon, yeah. Is there anybody doing it right in Canada? I feel like a lot of people look to uh, Tobias lately uh, at Shopify. I just feel like he's just way ahead of a lot of things. Um, like a very future, like forward-looking person. And I just love, we talk about putting yourself out there and having the courage to be disliked. We were talking about that earlier. He just doesn't, he's just him, you know, like he does not care. He puts his opinions out there and doesn't care if they're contrary to popular opinion. He's a, you know, the prime Canadian example right now, but he has the courage to be disliked, I think. And he's a German that immigrated to Canada because he met a girl. 
in Germany. So <laughs> there's another example of, of driving in, uh, immigrants to Canada to, uh, you know, here living in his girlfriend's basement, trying to make payroll. And uh, it's just that struggle, that combination of that struggle can be really good, can be, can be really, it, it kind of forces entrepreneurship. But yeah, no, there's that, he's a great example because, um, you know, he hasn't changed from what I know about him in the last decade at all, in the sense that he hasn't gotten really, it's very Canadian, hasn't gotten too ego, you know, ego hasn't gotten too big, et cetera. But yeah, hasn't settled down. Like their latest innovation is in fulfillment, which is, which is brilliant and taking on Amazon. So I love it. I mean, they are a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole, how can we help you? You've been so generous with your time at Ivy this year. You came back almost in back-to-back sessions weeks later after you, you had checked off the Ivy list and you thought we weren't going to bug you for a while. And then little did you know, I'd come right back and ask you to come speak in class. So how can we be helpful for you? Oh my gosh. I, I don't know. You're, you guys aren't bugging me at all. This is fun and it's easy, especially because I don't have to drive to London. I remember coming to Ivy and it was like, do you mind coming down to the class? Yeah, no problem. And there was this huge snowstorm that only hit London and I had the wrong car for that snowstorm. And I was like, oh God, but no, this is easy. This is just a one hour Zoom call in between the other Zoom calls. Yeah, pop on. I love your, uh, your background's legit. Mine's all made up and fabricated. Where, where is this your office? Yeah, so um, I bought a place in Caledon, an hour north of Toronto. And um, it's like an old 18, built in 1830 or something, stone stone house. And this is the new attic. So I turned it into an office because there is an office in the house, but this is like, I have ADHD. And so like, I need to be secluded in an attic where to get out of this office, there's a ladder that's like rickety. And so um, it's like, you don't just get up and go and sit at the kitchen table and start eating. So it's been, it's been very critical for the last six months. Just that is, that is awesome. Lock me up like Cinderella in the attic. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Anything you wish I would have asked Nicole, like advice, look, these are, these are the, probably the most entrepreneurial people uh, at Ivy right now. These are people that give a shit about personal development um, and are just trying to figure it out. Uh, any advice to your, I don't know, 21 year old self or anything that you wish I would have covered that I didn't? Well, the advice I'd have for my 21 year old self is just to like, just try things and not care so much about the perception of how they look. So yeah, for anyone in the class who wants to reach out to me, go ahead and I think Tierney already promised to come work for free to have good sales experience at (laughs) sellergenius.com. That's awesome. That's awesome. Nicole, you've been super generous. Appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much. Uh, Good to reconnect with you and uh, we'll see you, I don't know, hopefully in person at some point in the future. Yeah. See you later. Thanks. Take Take care. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.